thinky, thirsty, and over 30. Welcome to Afternoon Army, a safe place for grown army to dish and discover BTS. We are four ladies who just wanted to know their names and can now explain the meaning of Lachi Bolala. New to Army? No problem. Come along as we explore all the important business suit that Bangtan throws our way. Join us on the last Tuesday of every month as we hop in the clown car and drive to the circus. And stay tuned for shorter snack-sized episodes between hosts and various correspondents because one thing we know is that the content just keeps on coming. Okay. Okay. Hello. Hello. We're recording now. Yay. <laughs> so um, we are back with Book Club. We took a little hiatus on accident. Yeah. It was um, really but... Yungi's fault. It was yes, really his fault. I was fault. just going to say. Just putting putting the blame where it needs to be because we got completely sidetracked by D-Day and all the things leading up to that and then traveling. Well, for me, traveling to California, you coming down the coast a bit. So mm-hmm. so now we're here and we're excited to talk about our April and May books. We're going to talk yes. about two today. Yes. So we're going to start with Kim Ji Young, born 1982. And this was a novel by Cho Nam Ju. Um, she was a former scriptwriter for TV programming, and she only took two months to write this story because, according to her, this is a quote from Wikipedia, Kim Ji Young's life isn't much different from the one I have lived. That's why I was able to write so quickly without much preparation. This book was originally published in two, October of 2016, and it has sold over 2 million copies worldwide. Um, the story, this is from also from Wikipedia, the story centers on a housewife who becomes a stay-at-home mother and later suffers from depression. It focuses on the everyday sexism the title character experiences from youth. So overall, how did you feel about this book? I love this book. It's one of my favorite books. Um, I've read it a few times. It's so hard to read. It's hard to read for all the like microaggressions and all the sexism and just like seeing it so um, like plainly written out. And this is interesting. Sorry, we're jumping around a little bit, but the it's written from it's a case study by the psychologist that she's seeing. So he's writing out a case study. We'll talk about that more in the end. So what we're reading is very factual. Like she experiences this at this age and this at this age. And just like seeing things so plainly written out one after another is very difficult. But I really loved the story. Yeah. And I think that plays into our first question that we had posted to listeners um, was how the writing style impacted the reader's ability to connect with the character. And for me, you know, the right, this writing style immediately put me into the life and mind of Kim Ji Young. And I felt like this book is only like 163 pages. I looked, so it's a very short novel. It's a very short book, but it's told in such a direct and concise way that I mean, it it is so quick and you're immediately thrust into this story and you're trying to, it starts out where she's already kind of disassociating and then it like takes you back to possibly why. Um, and so that happens so quickly. There was, no, I mean, there was never a time where I was like, oh, I should put this down because I, it, mm. you know, there's too much to read or there's too much going on. No, it was like so easy to go through. And I read part of it and I also listened to part on um, Audible and it mm-hmm. just went so fast. Like I couldn't believe it. It was mm-hmm. very quick. Yeah. Like it could easily be one that you would read in one sitting. And I might have actually, the first time I read it, I might've just read it at once. I think for me, the what the writing style did is it allowed me to sort of get in her shoes with some emotional distance just because as a woman in a patriarchy society and just like being surrounded by toxic masculinity and trauma all the time like I liked that space of the more clinical writing um because I I live it and I see the like real life emotional aspects of it all the time like that's what I spend my days doing um and so I liked it almost made her more real for me um, reading that writing style and having it like, le- 
I mean, it almost feels like bullet points sometimes of like, and this and this and this. Mm -hmm. Um, So it actually like, I didn't feel it distancing at all, which I think some people might have that experience and valid. But for me, it really like let me get into the character quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Okay, so in the first couple chapters, we're introduced to Kim Ji-young's present day situation and then go back to hear her mom's story. What themes stood out from the mother's story to you? Well, this is, it's been a couple months since we've read this, so I apologize (laughs) if I'm not remembering things correctly, but I think what stood out is just the lack of choice that it feels like she has of just like everything that she does is sort of the decisions are made for her by the culture and by society. And she's just trying to do the best she can in making the best decisions that she can in the moment for her and her daughters. Cause I think um, like in this part of the book, we learn about how her brother, the youngest, you know, was raised and sort of the, the privileges that he got as the only boy and um, just like I, you know, just the the empathy and the connection that I have for a mom trying to make these really difficult decisions when you have so much pressure um, from society, from in-laws, from, you know, your own internal, like, this is what I feel like I should do, um, you know, now that I have this boy. Um, so I think that for me, um, just what stood out was just the pressure that she felt. I for me, I just really thought what was so interesting to me was that um, her mother, whose name is Misuk, like holds very traditional Korean culture values and like societal value in her home, Um, especially when the little brother is born. There's that whole scene about the baby formula. There's a scene about, um, Mm -hmm. you know, serving him more ramen than everybody else. Um, But, you know, the she is like, the traditional daughter-in-law she has great respect for her husband but it's such in far contrast of what that character actually does the mother because the mother ultimately is the actual breadwinner of this family and the Mm -hmm. mother is the one that goes out and does the work and makes it happen and so any opportunity that the the siblings or the children get and any riches that they're able to get or keep and it's not much i mean they're not like a you know chable family or anything but i just thought it was so like eye-opening that she actually was the one that was a breadwinner which was kind of untraditional for the time and she just did it and Mm -hmm. at the same time you know telling her daughters you have to follow this social code you have to follow this patriarchal code you know that kind of thing but in the end she was like the she was the patriarch of that family if we're really being honest so to me that was was really interesting about the mother's story there's Mm -hmm. also a part later um when um ji young has her own child and she's telling her mom like all you know oh i have you know this and this is falling behind and i'm falling behind this and the mom's like yeah you cried all the time or whatever like your sister did this you did this it was horrible i could didn't sleep i didn't eat i but and she was like Jiang was like, why did you never say anything? And the mom was like, who was I going to tell? Who was I going to tell this to? Who was going to listen to me? This is just part of being a woman. This is just part of being a mother. And so, yes, like the entire time, this woman doesn't have choices, yet she still makes choices Mm -hmm. for her family and is able to take care of them way better than like the man of the house could which I that was so interesting to me and I was like wow that's such a nod to like the strength of a woman right like women put themselves in these situations all the time where they're just like well I gotta do it there's Mm -hmm. no you know I will do it I will take the reins or I'll make sure it gets done so yeah that was a really interesting part of the book Mm -hmm. and how I mean that's just so uh, even present day just thinking about like you know people in my life and you know, working with people, like you see that all the time of like women just silently carrying all of this and, you know, like we won't go into my feminist rant, but. (laughs) But it is such a, this book for me, uh, and I'll get into it later, but this book for me is such a 
love letter to the emotional labor that women have in a household mm-hmm. of this kind. Um, and I don't know if you, if people even realize it, like, and there's a, I will talk about it later, but like her husband, Day Young, I don't even know that Day Young realized the microaggressions that he was doing because that was just how he had always lived his life. And so it is like you said, like not to go on a feminist rant or anything, but like, you know, women carry such an emotional load, whether they are mothers or career women or whatever. I just think women were created in this way to like carry an emotional load and be able to do it well while still doing everything else. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the greatest strength. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think we should speak out more. <laughs> <laughs> we really should. <laughs> Allison, give us your feminist rant. No, just no. kidding. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then so... transition. Oh, sorry. No, go Transitioning ahead. to like her adolescence and early adulthood, sort of how did secrecy and shame impact Ji Young's experiences as a female in the family and in her community? Um, the things that stick out to me, I'm sorry if you can hear my cat crying, my cat's crying to get in here. Sorry. Um, we'll just cut that part out. Um, the parts that really stuck out to me about secrecy and shame, um, Mm -hmm. were really the, the paragraphs that she talked about having to hide her period and her menstruation supplies. Um, and only because I feel like this is kind of like a sidebar, but I feel like that's very like of also of my generation, I'm 45. And I just feel like I can remember being like in seventh grade and like, you didn't want anyone to know you were carrying pads. Like how embarrassing if anyone knew you were carrying pads or wore a bra or, you know, whatever, like the biggest fear of me and all my friends was starting our period at school. And like, it would be on our pants, you know? And in contrast, I have two daughters, um, 13 and 16. And, um, we've had these things come up and, you know, my daughters are of the age and they talk about it so freely mm-hmm. with their friends, with their male friends, with anybody. It's not a secrecy anymore for that generation here in the West anyway. And to me, I, I told them one time, I said, you guys don't realize how lucky you are that this is not a big deal. You guys do not realize how fortunate you are that you're able to talk about these things with your friends openly and nobody is going to laugh at you nobody is going to um, shame you about it and that is new and I think Mm -hmm. it's great and I love that but like you don't understand I it's like I mean I can remember being in college and still like making sure it was in the right makeup bag and making sure that makeup bag was never going to be open and like (laughs) now it's like uh, whatever it's I I'll post it on the internet fine it's fine but like I just, to me, that just stuck out so much because I it really resonated with me. Like, I remember hiding those mm-hmm. things. I remember being so secretive about that. What about you? I have a thing that comes up just listening to that story is that scene in the Go Back couple, that K-drama, where he she's on her period and she doesn't have stuff. And so he goes to the, you know store and gets her the right pads gets her the right like pain meds and you're like yeah like why don't we normalize this yeah um I think for me if I'm remembering um the the part of the book right is the scene where she's on the bus and she's getting um assaulted by those men and just like the I think that as women and this is not every woman's experience obviously but there's this sense of like we can't talk about that stuff um and just some like shame of you know like what did I do to attract this attention and it's not about you know the you it's about the perpetrator um and I think that there's some like secrecy and shame that a lot of women carry and why this book resonates with so many um, is because like we've seen experiences that we've had experiences like that. And like there's some shame and like secrecy and some fear of sharing those stories 
in that experience. And so like having that woman come off the bus with her and make sure she's okay. Um, and just like knowing that she was seen in that and that somebody else identified, no, this is a safety concern and you're not going to be alone. Like, I think just really stood out for me in that particular part. Yeah, I had actually wrote that for the next question that I love that that you put this question. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you said, I think these chapters could also be called death by a thousand cuts, what microaggressions stood out while reading these chapters. And that was one of my microaggressions was that he took her kindness as an invitation. And how many times I've heard this story from women that their kindness has been taken as an invitation um, for something sexual or more than just kindness. Um, and, you know, that is still to this day a microaggression because mm -hmm. then you are put in a situation where was it me? Did I do something? You know, and nine times out of 10, no, you were just being yourself. And now you're put in, you know, thrust into this situation. Um, the other one was the story about the men at the company that Ji Young had worked mm -hmm. at, um, that her friend comes and tells her. And these men um, have been videotaping women in the bathroom. But it's the women um, that are le like left just to deal with it because according to her friend, they could not possibly punish these men. They had families and they have you know, they're the head of household and they have, you know, bills to pay and children to take care of. And it's like, but they were still wrong. And so because they're women and because they should just deal with it, they, you know, it's like, it's getting, nobody really got punished for that. Nobody really took the fall for that. And so these women are still working in a company where the men still work that were videotaping them in the ladies room. Um, and so to me, you know, those, you know, on top of the little things, um, there's the part in the beginning when she's a child in school and the little boy is um, bullying her and the teacher says, well, that's because he likes you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she's like, no, you don't understand. He hates me because why would he do this to me? Why would he throw my shoe? Why would he put food in my hair? Why would he do all these things? And so, yeah, to me, those all really stood out. And I can remember um, that happening to my daughter when she was in first grade, um, a little boy poured milk on her at lunch. And when I asked her about it, she said, Oh, well, you know, sometimes he pulls my hair and sometimes he pulls the back of my sweatshirt and sometimes he throws food at me. And, so, and everyone just says it's because he likes me. And I said, no, that's not okay. Mm -hmm. Because when we like people, we don't do that. So mm -hmm. if he does this again, I'm going to have to go and talk to the teacher because this is not the kinds of things that we do to people we like, right? Like you wouldn't throw food at him. You wouldn't. So that conversation, in my mind, I didn't think I was going to have to have those conversations so early, but I, I really did. And I think that that's really the reality for women is that we have to start having these conversations so much earlier because that attitude is still there where it's very much like, oh, well, he likes you. So that's why he's, you know, doing pushing you around and it's like no that's not okay mm -hmm. that's not what we're gonna do anymore so yeah it just that part was not shocking to me in the book but it really like when I thought about my experience as a you know kid in elementary school and then I thought about my daughters you know that's things that still happen today mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think for me like just you know again echoing like the fact that we're reading these things like one after another and the like just the enormity of when you're looking at them as a whole but also then the pieces that come after that of like well when I the next time I'm on a bus I'm going to have to be very careful or I'm going to like I mean you talk to you know most women and they're you know scanning their surroundings all the time and they're cognizant of who's around and you know if you're at a gathering um, you're watching your drink, you know, and just sort of the additional like mental lens that we see our safety and the world is so like, it's exhausting to constantly, you know, having to do that. Um, and to then be like, have these concerns or these issues be minimized by the people around you um, is just another layer of those like here's another cut, here's another cut, here's another cut. Um, you know, like, well, what did you wear? What did you say? It's like, this isn't about 
me. This is about, let's put the responsibility back on the person who <laughs> is responsible for these crimes. So yeah, that's what thing that stood out for me. Yeah, I agree. So um, this quote, I could not find this quote. And if you don't remember this quote, we can cut this part out. But um, this is a quote. In a few years, that precious daughter of yours will find herself exactly where I am now, unless people like you stop treating me this way. Why is this place so meaningful? And what did Ji Young want, I guess? I think she just wants people to be responsible for her actions and to see that those little things like, oh, he just likes you or like not being seen as capable in your own person um, have a really negative impact um, on women. So I I really do like that. I don't remember where that came from, <laughs> but I do like that quote. Um, and I think that you know, we talk about, you know, there's just a lot of legislation stuff up in, you know, my state and, you know, around the United States. Um, and so oftentimes I just, you know, look at these men that are making these huge decisions and it's like, do you want these decisions made for the women in your life? And that is terrifying to me if they are okay with that. Um, and just the, like, think about those people that are closest to you because we 50% of the population, you know, is impacted in this way. And why, why don't you think about that more? Yeah, I agree. It made me think of just the, I talk about it a little bit in another question, but the part at the end of the book where she has gone out um, on a walk with her daughter and someone calls her a mom roach Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. and she comes home and she's so upset by it and she's trying to relay the message to her husband like this is not okay I'm a person I'm a human I do labor I do work in the home I I also am worthy of these things I'm also worthy of these riches or whatever you know this uh privilege I guess Um, And he is like, don't worry about it. They're scum. Like, you know, just, you know, just put it out of your mind. And she can't because they have made her feel unworthy of the life that she has, unworthy of like what she's doing. And again, uh, she just wants the respect, right? She just wants people to respect her. She just wants people to like really um, look at women and think, yes, you can. Um, and at that time and in the society, they're not doing that for her. And so now she's worried because she has a daughter of her own. And what does that mean for her daughter? So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's just so impactful. In the later part of the book, like her voices of her in-laws um, and her parents are pretty prominent. Um, what, like, how did those narratives add to the voices and microaggressions in that she heard throughout her childhood? You know, I... I looked back to see when this book, like what the years were going, right? So it's really from like 84 all the way to like, I want to say like 2018, I think. But the fam, this part really as an adult is like between 2012, I said, want to say in like 2016. And, you know, it's just the emphasis that G Young would leave her career, her dreams, her goals, and everything for her husband and her family. Um, and cultural, like cor- the culture and the society really demanded that, um, that she would give it all up. And as hard as she tried to fight that, she can't fight that idea. Um, there's the part where she is going to work or she's in a workplace and they're telling her things like, well, when are you, when are you thinking about having a baby? Um, like in a job interview, like, well, are you married? Well, when you get married, how long before you have a baby? Because the idea is they don't want to hire her and spend time on her if she's just going to go have a baby because there's a chance that she won't come back, which is interesting because this book also has citations of actual studies that were done in Korea during this time. And they do cite those studies that say, you know, this percentage of women did leave the workforce, did go have babies and did not return. So I thought that that was really interesting. It kind of helped with the narrative. Um, but to me, all of those things that she dealt with from a young child all the way through to her marriage to even being a married woman about to have a baby, you know, it was just very much assumed that she was just going to give give up that part of her life. 
Um, mm-hmm. And there's a part where she wakes up. She's like on maternity leave and she wakes up and realizes her whole routine is like shattered. She's not going to have her favorite sandwich today at 12 or whatever it is. And she's not going to stop at the coffee shop at this time. And she's not going to do this. And those tiny little things that you, it's almost like a bring comfort to you in your day. Well, now she's not going to have that because her life has already changed and her child hasn't even been born. And so Mm -hmm. that just really stuck out to me that like, you hear the talk of the parents, you hear the talk of the in-laws and as much as she's trying to fight for her independence and not from her husband or her family, but just as a woman, like I can still do all these things. Mm-hmm. She just can't ultimately, she just can't fight that off. Right. Cause she was just as successful in her career as he was. Um, but the default was that she would give up her job to raise the, their child. And I think in the book, um, like there's, I can't remember the book or the movie, um, but she actually talked, they talk about it, you know, they have a conversation about it, which is great because I think that, you know, sometimes um, that's really not even a conversation that is had, you know, at least with, you know, people that I've worked with in the past is just like, well, no, this is what I do. This is what society tells me that I have to do. This is what my family tells me I have to do. There was no discussion. It was just like, and now I'm giving up my job in order to raise my family. Um, regardless of whether or not that's what the person wanted. And if that is your choice, fantastic. Like that's hard work. And if that, you know, like if that is what works best for you and you, you know, are making that decision, great. Like go for it. But just the assumption that this is the role that is best suited to you is hard. So, yeah. Um. Okay, so kind of spoiler alert, but um, I did not realize until the end that, like you said, um, and when we started this podcast, that this was a case study. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the final chapter really is from the psychologist's perspective, which is a man. And so how did you feel? Uh, In the question you put, it feels like a final insult. And I kind of felt that. So can you elaborate a little bit about the final insult? Yeah. So as I said, like, I've read this book a few times, and I think it just completely like went over my head or like, I'm pretty, I skim quite a bit. So I really do need to read my books twice when I read them. (laughs) Um, But I did not realize until this reading of it, that it was the psychologist perspective, the whole book. And that just to me like completely took her voice out of it and also at the same time it was just as like it was impactful like hearing those things and seeing those written out I think in one review I read from the New York Times it said it was like a case study on microaggressions and microaggressions and sexism rather than like you know, the perspective of it's a case study about this one particular woman, um, Kim Ji-young in South Korea, but really like the character is every woman, like, you know, and so I think that we do get um, like her, her experiences. And I think like, there's just a lot of emotional impact from like reading those things that like, as a woman, I've experienced knowing women have, you know, experienced all these things. Um, But it was just like a stab of like, but it's told through a man's lens. um, Or like from it's written by a man. And it's like, I want, like, would it have been different if the psychologist was a female? Um, You know, just how might that have changed my reading of the last chapter and sort of putting it all together where I was like, oh, this is a case study. Um, this is, these are his notes. It just, yeah, it was it was interesting. And I, I kind of, I liked that just from a like, oh, that's kind of a cool twist. But I was also mad about it. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, like, you get this whole story and you get this whole perspective. And then he is explaining what he thinks happened, right? He's explaining why she has this dissociative disorder. But the real thing to me that was interesting was the doctor's own wife 
had to give up, and he says this at the end, had to give up her own career to take care of their son who has what they've diagnosed as ADHD. And the, the teacher, the school teacher of the son has said, he needs to stay at home mommy, which was kind of insulting, but whatever. Mm-hmm. So here she goes, she gives up his, gives up her whole career and is raising their son. And in the end, he is really stumped at why his very smart, very clinically trained wife is finding comfort in elementary school math problems. And I'm like, Shonamju, did you just drag the male species 100% at how clueless they can actually be? Because I feel like that's what she did. So when I went back for this podcast to like reread that part, I was like, okay, I was real disappointed in the ending. But now I'm kind of not because she is actually showing us how clueless he is. (laughs) Look at all of these things. He did this whole study on 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 women and how they are taken in society and how culture does this and the society does that. And yet he's still stumped why his wife is doing these elementary school math problems as like her comfort. Like instead of scrolling mm-hmm. Instagram, she's solving elementary school math problems. And it's like, I see you. I see you, Chonamju. I, <laughs> I love that Power so much. People, you know? Um, so real quick before we wrap up, I just uh-huh. want to say what really resonated with me Um was the chapters on marriage and motherhood mm-hmm. because I very much saw myself in those chapters. And um, there's a part in there that just really got, I, I mean, it really got to me for a number of reasons, but it's the, it's the part at the end of the book where she is um, waiting for her daughter to get out of school and she goes into an ice cream shop and there's a woman working as a part-time worker in the ice cream shop. And she is contemplating going back to work after being out of the workforce for a long time. And that is I've been there. I've, I'm still there doing that. And she's talking to the woman about, don't you have to sign a contract? And don't you have to do this? Don't you have to do that? And there's almost an air of like arrogance for Kim Ji-young. And the part-time worker looks her in the eye and says, I also have my college degree. Mm-hmm. And it was such a devastating thing for her to hear because she was from the perspective of, oh, this poor woman is just doing this to you know make the strokes. But in the end, the woman is a mere image of herself. And it just really resonated with me because I am a stay at home mom. I've been a stay at home mom. Most of my children's lives. I went back to the work workforce a couple of years here, a couple of years there, but in the end, in order to afford childcare, I would have had to either have more hours or go back to school. That was just the reality of it. And it was, it's very hard to be in social situations. When you meet a new person, they ask you what you do and you tell them that you're a stay-at-home mom because they look at you like you're garbage. They look at you like, maybe not garbage, but like how disappointing your husband mm-hmm. is successful and you stay at home with the children. Um, and so that really resonated with me um, because I've been in those social situations before and I have been the stay-at-home mom. Um, but I find pride in that now and reading the chapters that she wrote on the emotional labor, the actual physical labor that goes into raising children, you know, not that I needed that kind of like um, confirmation, but I just liked hearing it from another perspective. And, you know, just all that to say, as I did have a friend once tell me, you know, I always forget you have a college degree. (laughs) And I just felt like that was so insulting as a person, but also as a friend, because I, I also have a working mind. Right. You know, like that there's more facets to me than just what you see. So anyway, all that to say, that's, yeah. that's what really resonated with me in this book. Yeah. There, um, the, the review that I read in the New York times, the author said, um, it's forcing me to confront traumatic experiences that I try to chalk up to nothing as nothing, try to talk up to as nothing out of the ordinary. And I, I think that that's like the power of this book is to let you see those things as real valid emotional like experiences and cuts and like, no, it's, it's not okay that my friend made that comment. And like, we oftentimes just like, Oh, it's fine. It's fine. You know, like you try to, give people the benefit of the doubt or whatever. And it's like, no, that that's not okay. (laughs) Like I, my emotions are valid and that's really disrespectful to hear comments like that. So, so. Um, And one last thing I always like to, in my mind, wonder why this was on 
um, Namjoon's bookshelf. And so I always say, like, why do you think he read this book? And, you know, he's a smart man and he likes to learn about a lot of things. But I'm wondering if his mom called him and was like, you need to read this book. <laughs> I love you, son. But this is a read really this. good book and you need to read this book. Because I feel like that he kind of has that relationship with his mom. I feel like like the things that he pictures he's posted, things he said about her. But also, I just feel like if he didn't read an he either read an article and it referenced this book and he wanted to know more or mama called and was like, son, do I got the book for you, <laughs> which I love. I really hope that's the case. I wonder, I can't remember this one when this book came out, but he when early on when he they first debuted, he was called out for his misogynistic lyrics. And so he worked with a woman studies professor to be like, okay, help me figure this out. Like, help me do better. Um, and it's one of my very favorite things about him, actually, that he was like, rather than taking that and being insulted, he's like, okay, how do I do better? How do yes. I make this right? And so maybe it was on the uh, woman yeah. studies professor to read list. <laughs> yeah, maybe it was. Maybe she said, you also need to read this book. Right. This out. So. Yeah. One tiny little last thing for this book, Kinji Young. The I like comps, and I think one of the best comps is the yellow wallpaper. So if you liked this book and you haven't read the yellow wallpaper, go read the yellow wallpaper. It is also a very short story. You can read it in one sitting. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about human acts. Let's. Yeah, so, so this was a heavy book. It was a very heavy book. And um, before we start, we kind of talked about this before we even started recording. But I did want to say that it was by total coincidence that we picked this book for May. Um, me, myself, and I will only speak for myself right now as a white woman or mixed woman from the West and only knowing mostly Western history. I did not know that the Guangzhou uprising happened in May of 1980. Um, it was actually May 18th of 1980. And so as I was reading this book, um, I got really grounded in the fact that for whatever reason, kismet or whatever, um, we are reading this book. We were reading this book in the month of May. I actually just finished it two days ago. So I really, Allison, you put it so well when you said we just really want to honor that space and we want to honor those who whose lives were affected and those who lost their lives. This book was very heavy to read and it did take me the entire month to read it. Um, and we can talk about that as we go into our discussion. Um, but I would encourage anyone listening, if you don't know anything about the Guangzhou uprising to do some research, I'm going to add some things into the show notes so that um, you can better um, acquaint yourself with it. Um, but understand that if you are listening from abroad and if you are Korean American or Korean that we honor this space for you. Um, this book was so impactful and it will probably be one that I suggest to a lot of people because it was not only beautifully written, but it does shine a light on some atrocities that we are not taught here in the West. And I think that that is a tragedy in itself. So, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so, do you do you want to just talk briefly about the uprising because um and then we can jump into the book sure i just took this from um wikipedia i just just plain and took it from wikipedia um the guangzhou uprising known in korea as may 18th um, was a popular uprising in guangzhou south korea in 1980 the uprising was a response to the coup of May 17th, that installed Chun Doo-wan as military dictator and implemented martial law. Following his ascent to power, Chun arrested opposition leaders, closed all universities, banned uh, political events, and suppressed the press. The uprising was violently suppressed by the South Korean military. The uprising is also known as May 18th Gwangju Democratization Movement. Um, and it was a massacre. Um, the uprising began after Cheonnam University students who were demonstrating against martial law were fired upon, killed, um, sexually assaulted, and beaten by the Korean military. Um, and this goes on to say how the citizens reacted. Um, the book goes into great lengths to express the fear and trauma um, that 
these that the citizens were dealing with at the time. Um, and as we talk about the book, and as you know from being a professional, the trauma doesn't end with just one year or two years passing. So um, this book is beautiful in the sense that it takes something very tragic um, and keeps the memory um, alive, mm-hmm. which is, you know, like they say, how do you get history, stop history from repeating itself? You educate people on how things, atrocities like this happen. So mm-hmm. the book is written using second perspective, um, and how does that like writing style impact your connection to the story and the characters? It really helped me separate from the violence. I started listening to this on Audible and about three minutes in, I pressed pause and I jumped on our group chat and said, trigger warning, there is a lot of violence and there is a lot of discussion on on gore, on the gore of violence, on the horrific things that happen in violent situations. And I think that we just need to know that before going in. Um, And it helped me, the second perspective really helped me stay in the story because the violence for me was very overwhelming. I'm not a squeamish person. I mean, I don't Mm -hmm. do zombies, but like I watch shoot 'em ups. I watch, you know, like, movies like mafia movies and stuff like that. I've never been squeamish about that, but there was just something very different about this story um, that made me pause. And so that second perspective really helped me stay in the story um, as the violence was occurring. And so I, I think that if not, I, I would not have finished this book. Yeah. That's funny. Like you, when I first started reading this book, I was listening to it on audio and I had read it maybe two years ago, something like that. I More than two years ago, because I was still working at my other job um, and was just like, I just remember like walking around downtown Lincoln, like listening to the book and just like, um, this isn't a spoiler, like, you know, Megan just said, like, the book is really grotesque. And you're sort of like watching or listening or reading these descriptions of like bodies decomposing and things like that. Um, but the author, um, Han Kong's writing style is so beautiful that it's, you're completely enraptured listening to these very grotesque details of the like what was happening. And I think that for me, at least in some ways, it humanized the the characters. Like it just felt like she was giving stories to human and humanity um, and giving that, making space for those perspectives rather than making it about like political acts or like, you know, different mm-hmm. like strategy it was just like, here's humanity, which, you know, then throughout the book, that title human acts, like just, I was like, Oh, I get it. (laughs) Human (laughs) acts. This is a human (laughs) act. Like, and I just like, I think that that speaks to her like genius as a writer. Um, I've read another one of her books called the vegetarian. And it also has just these elements of like grotesque. And I, now I kind of want to go back and reread that one because it was also beautiful and sort of at times very difficult to read, but very different subject matter. And she had another book come out this year or in 2022. So she's, she's written quite a few books. If you like this style, you can go and read more of her. Yeah. The first part of this book is very visceral, like you said, and grotesque. So what emotions did you notice that were coming up for you as you read the first few chapters? I think for me, it was like, like a a sadness or just sort of like respect for how fleeting life is and how, you know, we will all at some point be bodies decomposing. Like that is the reality of our existence. And so again, it's sort of humanized. This is, this is everybody's path. We will all be doing this at some mm-hmm. point. And then just sort of like interweaving in then the fact that this was 
you know, those, the political aspects of it, which she, you know, does a good job of weaving in. Um, I just, I remember reading it in sort of like that disconnection of there's some space between the, the grotesqueness um, and like the poetic writing style. Um, and also just like, you're talking to the core of who we are. It felt like. Yeah. I, my first thought was, what an amazing author um, mm. that can craft a story this way, because this could have been just very grotesque. This could have just been a political novel. This could have just been about a horrible thing that happened. But she told the story in a way that made it so real and human. And, um, you know, I was shocked in the beginning at the gore of it, but the emotion that pours out of the characters, whether they're alive or not, um, was so shock like shocking to me. Um, it was done in such a beautiful way. And you're even rooting for these characters, even though your mind is telling you it's too late to root for them, mm-hmm. but you do want what's best for them. And um, I didn't mention this at the beginning, just because we were talking more about the uprising itself. But you know, this story really centers around one character. And then everybody that is in some way connected to that character. So you get the, it. they refer to him as the boy, the boy first. And then you get all the interactions or the people that have some type of degree of separation to this main character. And it's just told in such a beautiful way. So there are characters that you know from the very beginning are no longer alive. However, you still have that empathy for them and you still want them to win in some way or have a peaceful ending. And I think just the way that she told the story, she was able to do that in such a beautiful way, which I really admire. Mm-hmm. So speaking of the fact that it is sort of one one person, like one character through the book, it does sort of feel like a collection of short stories at the same time. Um, did you have like a favorite section of the book as you were reading it? Because I mean, you could read sort of each of these sections as standalones, but they're interweaving. It's it's yeah. a novel. It's very well written. It It's so, I mean, can't express that enough, how well written it is. But yes, like, I think that's the beauty of this novel is that it serves as both. You can read it as a novel or you can read it as a collection of short stories, which I did um, because, you know, we went on our Oakland Odyssey. So I kind of left it for a little bit. Um, but was able to like pick it right back up and be in the story. And I also appreciated because of the heavy subject matter that if I felt like I was overwhelmed emotionally or I felt like it was something that I um, did, I could not handle that heavy subject matter at the time, I was able to put it down. I was able to put it down and walk away from it, you know, touch grass as they say, and then, you know, return to it um, and not be emotionally overwhelmed by it. And, um, the st- one, the one chapter or story that really stuck out to me um, was the one about the editor mm. and how she is slapped seven times, and she decides how she's going to get over the seven slaps, and she takes it one slap at a time, and the absolute genius of that and how that story was told. I was like, I could apply this to anything in my life, anything that I needed to get over. I could break it down because the character says it was just seven slaps. So I just need to get over one slap at a time and then I'll be over it and I'll be done with that. And I just thought, wow, that not only are you telling this really heavy story, but you're also giving a perspective that I, in all my years, have never really heard of, of breaking something like that down, breaking an an event down like that, that has really impacted you, and then being able to deal with it one piece at a time. So I just Mm -hmm. thought that was incredible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that chapter is really hard (laughs) to read. (laughs) It's incredibly Um, hard to read. Yeah. I would say that one is my favorite as well. Yeah. And some, I think I'm getting this one confused with other books, but is there a chapter? Yeah. I think that one is my favorite. And I also, I kind of, 
I like the opening chapter because you sort of get this like bird's eye view of what's happening and then you get closer and closer and closer um, to to the story and the characters. Um, so I like that introductory chapter for that like zoomed out mm-hmm. perspective and then going into it. Yeah, I also like the chapter on the author. Yeah. Um, and the author's perspective of, which makes me curious um, about other things but the author's chapter about hearing about this story as a little girl as it was unfolding um and the secrecy about it because as we learn from everybody's story in the book you don't talk about this this Mm -hmm. is a trauma that you don't talk about um there's the story of the woman i don't remember what the chapter is called but it's towards the end where she is older a factory girl that's Mm -hmm. what it is it's the factory Mm -hmm. girl story and it's been 20 years And she has a new job and she's doing something else completely different. And someone approaches her about her involvement in um, protests. And she just says, oh, I didn't know them that well. Oh, I didn't. I I wasn't involved in that particular thing. And she still is afraid to share her story. It's been 20 years, over Mm -hmm. 20 years. She's still afraid to share her story. She's still afraid to put herself out there. And so to me, that was just so impactful that you have all of these people, they're all involved in a certain way. And yet there's still this real, like we talked with Kim Ji Young, there's still this real secrecy and shame about this when I don't think that they're, from my perspective reading, that they didn't have to, but they were so entrenched in the fear Um, which I think was still real and very visceral. I'm sure they could still feel that fear and that um, trauma, you know, and that like, I like, I felt like in factory girl, she was always afraid. There was, she was always looking over her shoulder. She was always worried about what people thought she was doing versus what she was actually doing. Um, And I just think that's a real testament to what people that were involved in that uprising still live with to this day. It's very interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Now, prior to reading, you read this book probably, you said, two or three years ago. Mm-hmm. But prior to reading the this book, did you know about the Guangzhou Uprising? Um, and are you now interested in learning more? I did not know about it. And yes, because I think I say that with every book club episode that we do of this podcast is what I love about this is that it makes me curious about the world and it makes me want to learn more and just sort of learn about pieces of history that were never taught, you know, to me. Um, And so I actually think that's really fun, like to go and to learn more perspectives, hear more stories, you know, find out that in October of 1979, the president had been assassinated and there was that like political vacuum. And that's, you know, like the situations that led up to this uprising. Like I thought that was really interesting. Just like having the context for these stories. I like that part of it. How about you? Yeah, I'm really interested to learn more. Um, I'm going to drop a TikTok handle in our show notes. Um, her at is at YK Hong. Um, and she talks at length about Korean culture and Korean oppression. And she did do an, a video on um, the Gwangju uprising. So we'll go ahead and include that. I find it really interesting um, because I feel like now that I am someone who is watching Korean media um, and holds Korean media so close to my heart, I really need to learn more about the culture and I need to learn more more about the political systems that are in place um, so I have a better understanding of like what where things are coming from and how things you know how it is um, in that space, not just from my own Western, you know, glass, tinted glasses that I put on. What really got to me about this, this uprising in particular, is that I tried to really think about what in the West I had to compare it to. Mm-hmm. Um, what would, what is shocking? What has happened here that is shocking? And I couldn't really think of anything, but I thought about 
you know, in 2020, after the George Floyd incident, how we had a lot of protesting going on. And to me, this would have been like, if at a college campus, kids would have gone to protest and the government would have just gone and slaughtered all of them. And to me, that is so absolutely shocking and rocks me in such a way that that is kind of what actually happened in Guangzhou. Um, And for me to put it in that perspective of what would that look like here just really got me thinking I need to learn more and I need to educate myself better on what really happened um, and what is still happening um, in the world, in Korea, in my own backyard. Um, So, you know, I think sometimes that you kind of have to put it in that perspective, like what would that look like here? What would that have looked like in your own country to kind of give you the perspective and like the respect and the honor um, that is deserved of this, right? Like of the people that lost their lives and the people that were affected by it. The other thing um, that I am really interested in um, is that, you know, J-Hope's from Guangzhou. He was born there. He was raised there. Um, and he was born in 94, correct? He's 1994, I want, mm-hmm. right? And so that was 14 years after. His, from what we know, from what we've gathered, is that his father is a school teacher. So I just always wonder, not, not that they need to be political, right? Like, I don't need any of that. I just wonder what those conversations look like in his house because I am a parent and I was a young adult during 9-11 and I get so many questions every year on the anniversary of 9-11 from my own children. So I always just kind Mm. of wonder like what the conversation was. We know that this is from Namjoon's bookshelf. He read this. Um, He just got a new ambassadorship himself. He has spoken at the White House. He has spoken at the UN. Now he has this um, recovery. It's a, um, they call it the KIA recovery effort and identification effort, which is basically to help identify the remains of victims of the Korean War. So I just wonder how their, what their thoughts are. Not that I need them, not that I'm asking like, hey, you should talk about this more. I don't feel that way at all. But mm-hmm. it was very, I guess, I, I don't know that it's shocking, but I was like, wait, the Guangzhou uprising, isn't Jeho from Guangzhou? Then I looked it up and he was, and I just thought, was he ever sitting somewhere like the little, like the author chapter, the little girl at the end, listening to the adults talk and wondering more, right? Mm-hmm. that how that conversation went so when I read that chapter I really thought about J-Hope being a child not as it was happening obviously but years later because I know that it's a big deal in Korea it's a big anniversary in Korea but it's mm-hmm. also probably a big deal that he actually is from Guangzhou so I just you know those things make me curious um mm-hmm. as I go along yeah on the you know like we always do at the end of the book is like why did Namjoon read this and I think you know one because he he likes to know about his country he's very you know proud and just wants to better understand the world around him and I think that he also likes to humanize things and like you know bring it back to like but what about this human experience you know what about this great um sort of historical event in how do you process it through like the lens of just being human. Um, And so that, you know, maybe is just not that we can never be in their mind, but just interesting to like get curious. (laughs) Well, and I think it really lends itself too as like, you know, when you talk to people and tell them you're a fan of BTS and they go, Oh, the boy band, the Mm -hmm. pop, the K-pop band, it's just K-pop. It's actually not guys. They're super smart. They have brains. (laughs) They they are thinking people. They are thinking humans themselves, right? Right. Like, how do you, you can't ignore the fact that we are reading these books from this young adult, this young man, right? Bookshelf that he's been reading for years. And they're this heavy. They're this impactful. They're this educating. You just can't brush that aside, right? You just can't. 
I know he's my bias, but I'm just saying, like, you, you, can't, <laughs> you can't brush that aside and just be like, oh, they're just a K-pop band. Like, they just go out and have fun and entertain people. No, they can, can, will, and, and are going to do great things. Right. Because you don't have these types of books on your shelf if you're not interested in a better world. You don't share these types of books with your friends like Almond. You don't share books like Almond with your friends because you're like, oh, this was a cool book I read. You right. share things like that because you want people to open their minds, but you also want to like better the world. So I just mm -hmm. like, again, I love that we do this because it kind of opens it up. Like they're not just, you know, they don't <laughs> just go out there and dance guys. They don't just like go out there in their cute outfits. Like they're actually people with mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was walking out of the office this afternoon. I was like, well, I'm going to go report or record a podcast on a South Korean uprising. <laughs> 1980 and my co-workers were like okay <laughs> sure okay Allison um I did want to say though uh there was a part have you watched reply 88 have you watched the reply 88 yes. series okay mm -hmm. so there is a, a few episodes where the oldest daughter um of one of the main families is going out and protesting for change basically. And it's for school. It's for college. They, there's a whole laundry list of things that they think that should be available for college students. And the parents are, everybody is beside themselves. How could they, you know, how could they do this? How they, and me, a Westerner was like, okay, yeah, I get that. You know, the political climate climate was as it was. And I kind of looked up some things and of the time in 1988, not earlier or later, and I was like, okay, well, I can see why. And then I had read a book. Um, oh my gosh, I can't remember what it's called, but it was about the um, divers on Jeju. Mm. And it was about some of the atrocities during the Korean War. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought, okay, the parents are of that generation. They have been taught to respect authority, whatever. But now after reading this, I realize why the parents were so upset. And it was because they were students and they were protesting. And it was eight years after Gwangju, after the Gwangju uprising. Right. So now I see that in such a different light um, and it makes so much more sense. So, you know, and what a great way that that writer and director kind of put that in there, you know, mm -hmm. like they are doing a nod to we recognize this and we are honoring this part of mm -hmm. our history mm -hmm. so I thought that was really interesting yeah I agree yeah then I want to go read the other books by the author and she did win a literature prize I can't remember the name of the prize that she got for this book but she did win a, a, a prize for her writing of this one and she won yeah. the man booker prize for the vegetarian mm -hmm. so and I actually in one of my writing classes read a short story by her I can't remember what it's called, but when I find out, I'll share it in the, I'll make sure to include it in the show notes. I did want to mention too, at the end of this book and the acknowledgements, she does list resources if you would like more information on the Guangzhou uprising and the aftermath. And um, I will include all of those in the show notes. Um, there are two movies that I am trying to source. So if I ever find where they're available to watch, I will also add that in. Um, but not on her list, but what I will mention is the K-drama from 2021 called Youth of May is about the Guangzhou uprising. Mm. Um, it is one that I started, but I didn't finish, not because I didn't like it, but because there was like so many other things that were on at that time. Um, and it was a, for me, it was a slow starter. Now, mind you, I think I only got like three episodes in. Um, so I think it's something that I will go back and revisit now. Um, that I've read this book and I'm inspired to get more information. Cool. Yeah. All right. What are we reading for June? I have to look. Okay. We just got real sidetracked guys. Like our apologies. <laughs> DJ just, was a lot. <laughs> DJ was a lot. Like I, I'm not blaming him, but <laughs> But I think we can safely say he was very distracting between now and April. Our June selection for book club is When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi. 
I think that's how you say his last name. I probably mm-hmm. just butchered that. Um, but that is for June, and we will get on that and start reading. Keep in mind, it is Festa. It's overwhelming for Festa already. It's the second. Um, we, what hiatus? I just can't express that enough. What hiatus? It's, it is what it is, right? Yeah. No yeah, one so- told me that being a BTS fan was going to be a full-time job. It- they just, they didn't drop that in. It's fine. It truly is. Like, hats off to those people who were, like, trying to go through school (laughs) or do anything. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. God bless the students, right? Like, God bless the ones that are in college. Like, someone was like, I'm getting my PhD, but I'm also, you know, sitting for GA for D-Day. And I'm like, God bless you. Like, you're the best of us, (laughs) right? Like... (laughs) mad respect for that I we've talked about this before just like as a podcast group like what we were doing you know when they debuted and like where we were like why weren't we like on top of this in 2013 um but just like I can't imagine trying to go through grad school Mm. with Mm. like no it wouldn't have no like I wouldn't have been able it would have been like goodbye grad school I've got to go to Oakland California right now for (laughs) a show I mean truly and it's all in do fun and it's right. all with mad respect but there's just something about them like just when you think you can get a little shut eye there's you can't you can't and by no. the way at the time of this recording it's June 2nd 116 Pacific uh, Standard Time we still don't know where Kim Taehyung is okay I cannot express that enough he left on a plane and we never heard again what I hope he's having a great time. Whatever he's doing. I hope he's hope okay. He's having, yes. But I just need a little proof of life. Can you just let him post on Instagram? Just what? An eyeball? His hand? Drinking something? I, I'm not asking for a lot. I just need to know that he's okay. Right? My nervous system needs to like see him yeah just to like and we feel that way about all of them. Yeah. Like if we don't see one for like a little bit we're like okay what's going on what's happening where are they mm-hmm. we need to we need proof of life yeah yes and as we are finishing this we are going to get a new switcher to episode and Jin is on it and i we probably will podcast about that because i think it's going to be very emotionally overwhelming they filmed it four days before he enlisted which had me crying when i was watching already that little clip yeah. already like just hearing him say, I'm leaving in four days. So when you see this, I'll be good and I'll be doing what, like, you know, something for my country. And I just was like, okay, I guess we're crying Friday morning. It's great. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Guess we're already, guess we're already doing this. And then I watched that. And then like very quickly after that came last year's Festa. And it's just Jimin saying, we can't really tell you what's going on. But just trust us. And then Namjoon saying, like, I wish I could tell you without the weight of the world on my shoulders. And I was like, and I'm done for the day. <laughs> Never mind all the things I was going to do today. I'm just going to sit in a corner and cry. It's fine. <laughs> Welcome to Army Life. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> right? On that note, Allison, thank you so much for doing yeah. Book Club. I love Book Club. Thank you. Yeah. Bora hey. Bora hey.